Hey there, Freedom Fighters. My name is Andrew Warner. I'm the founder of Mixergy, where I interview entrepreneurs about how they built their businesses. You know that because I've been doing this now for years. Um, it's been a while, though, since I've recorded an interview at five o'clock with my kids here and the rhythm of the day already established. And um, I kind of want to acknowledge that and acknowledge that Nick Fogel, today's guest, is not just the guy who created Churnkey, among other businesses. And Churnkey, by the way, automates retention for your SaaS business. What's cool about it is that he built it for himself and then said, hey, you know what? Other businesses probably have the same issue. I'm going to do it um, as a standalone business. And they could they could sign up. And it's become a, a big success story for him. Um, but I kind of want to acknowledge that this is where we are. I, just before the interview, my kids came home. I went and I raked up some, I don't know where the lawn used to be, and I put some seeds down. I told you how good that felt. It was only like two minutes to get to patch some hole. Where are you, Nick? Like your kids, you told me, are barricaded behind the door. What's going on in your house right now? They're, they're locked down. We've got Bluey or one of these streaming shows on. They're <laughs> four and one-year-old, if, if that gives you any context. So they could burst in here any minute if my wife loses control. I'm in Charleston, South Carolina, by the way. For you, a one-year-old, can they sit in front of a TV? My one-year-old wasn't able to do it. So the four-year-old and the one-year-old have totally different personalities. Four-year-old, I mean, he's talking a mile a minute. He couldn't sit still. One-year-old, you could plop him down in front of the TV, or he'll go upstairs and play Magnetiles for like two hours straight. Wow. It's amazing. That is phenomenal. I feel like the one thing we didn't do with our kids over COVID was train them to be on their own. And that's such a good skill to have. And frankly, even for me, it took me until I was maybe seven, eight years old at an aunt's house, bored to death, that I finally at that moment realized how to entertain myself. I wanted a bicycle in the worst way. And there were all these different cool things you could get for your bike, like one of these uh, dynamos that you could attach to the wheel that would then spin and fire up your light and then there's this uh gear shifter that looks like the kind of thing that a car would have um on that horizontal bar and so i started imagining all the different things i wanted on my bike and that made me realize oh yeah i can entertain myself i all i have to do is think about what i want to do what i want to have and how i could do it and, and then my mind will go did it take you a while too that's a great model for entrepreneurship i think most entrepreneurs are, are those types you know they get bored and it's like what am I going to do next? You need some, <laughs> something to work toward. And for me growing up, it was, uh, I think it was like uh, Nintendo and Sega Genesis. You know, I can still smell the blockbuster, like rubbery smell, like walking in. Mom would take me and uh, I'd go pick up a game. I'm probably four or five at this point, pick up a game and just run up the stairs, fall my way up the stairs to get to the console and plug it mm -hmm. in, blow the cartridge. Those were my, some good memories. <laughs> One, it took us a long time to get any kind of video operation in our in our city in New York. There were too many built up companies and things like Walmart wouldn't come, Blockbuster wouldn't. But I remember reading about Wayne Huizenga and his whole model was he said, I'm looking for businesses where there are rentals because if I'm selling you something, you buy from me and then I have to convince you to buy the next one or another thing to go along with it. But if I've got rental, then I've got an ongoing relationship with you. And the first way that he built, the first business that he built was um, waste management um, industries or something. It was a very generic name, picking up garbage. They basically would put dumpsters out and then get paid every time they picked it. And then he discovered uh, videos and he started going cross country and just buying up all these mom and pop video stores and making them into a chain with the idea that people would just keep renting. And I remember after that, he started looking for the next big thing. And he thought, well, companies have water jugs. Maybe I do water rental and 
That didn't quite work out. There weren't a lot of businesses with rental. SaaS really is the replacement for that. I think if Wayne Huizenga, that billionaire um, who owned the Dolphins and some other sports team that I'm not cool enough to know, he he would be in SaaS like you. Nice ongoing revenue. Actually, do you have ongoing revenue? I forgot to check how you get paid. Do you guys get paid on a monthly or per recovery? Yeah. We we do monthly basis. It's the easiest. And I was just going to mention this is the CEO of Blockbuster. Blockbuster that you're Video, the, the, the founder essentially. He yeah. basically bought and, it. And and yeah, the interesting part of that, Andrew, is that, that didn't they have the opportunity to buy Netflix at one point? They did. I, I think they but did. but but you know what? By then yeah. he was gone. He had already sold his company to Viacom when Viacom was trying to buy um, Paramount Studios, and they didn't have enough money to make the payments on their on their loan that they took out to buy Paramount. So they bought Blockbuster because it was just kicking off cash, and all they had was this cash coming in to help them service the debt. And then at some point they got lazy, and then Netflix got aggressive. And yes, you're right; they missed an opportunity to buy Netflix, but. Frankly, so did I. I didn't buy their stock, even though I was a, a subscriber. Right, me too. And and you know the the beauty of to back to your question, the beauty of that SaaS revenue. And with Turnkey, um, the business I run currently, and initially we did think that um, let's do a percentage of recovered revenue because we're saving some companies. We've got a company we're saving them um, three hundred to four hundred thousand dollars a month in revenue. And man, it would be nice to uh, to you know pull in ten percent of that revenue or some percentage. The difficulty in doing that is it becomes very hard for CFOs and the accounting department to, you know, stomach that because it's dynamic, it's ever changing. Mm. And they've got a line item there that's that unpredictable. Even though they're saving that money, it's, you know, it's icing on the cake at that point. It's hard to get those deals done. So mm. it's it's much better to predict what we think they're going to save and do a fixed amount. You know, Nick, your competitor, and I forgot to say this, my my sponsors are, number one, if you're hiring developers, go to lemon.io slash Mixergy. And number two, if you're interested in this whole new movement of having decentralized autonomous organizations, DAOs, I created a podcast about it uh, where I interview entrepreneurs who've created DAOs. And I want you to go check it out at joinorigami.com slash podcast. But I'll talk about those later. Um, you know, Nick, though, your competitors do offer that. I know of at least one company that will charge her like charge a percentage of recovery my sense is based on the way you're talking is you're looking for like uh enterprise customers and he's going for the entrepreneur who can't stomach paying money unless that money makes him money and so he said i'm gonna connect it right yeah that's true and we were actually a customer of the company i think you're talking about with our previous business wave that has since been acquired and uh, there were some deficiencies with that product, just hadn't been updated in a while and things that we knew we could improve on, things that were missing. Let's talk about the names. Since we're, we're after critical. hours here. Yeah. What's the name of the company that you think I'm talking yeah. about? I was talking about ProfitWell. I was okay. too. Okay. So ProfitWell had what deficiencies at the time? You know, I, I think deficiencies may be uh, overly critical sounding. They just weren't offering some of the things that we needed. Like what? So let's talk about Wave. Okay. All right. So Wave was a business that was a video creative tool for mostly for podcasters, creators, influencers, product like that, a prosumer or a B2C app for creators, it's going to have very high churn. So people are going to constantly be canceling every two or three months. That was generally the lifetime of a customer. It was about three months, sometimes you know, just three to, to set six it up. Months. What Wave would do is they would, you would yeah. pull clips of a podcast and make them into these shareable little videos. And you're right. 
podcaster maybe decides for a month they're not going to record a podcast or maybe for some reason they they can't keep up with it for a few months they cancel and then when they're back in the promotion mode they sign up again okay so that's the issue that you were facing there right that budget was another one where they didn't have enough budget for tools because it's hey this is a self-funded passion project um, and then the seasonality that you mentioned they'll work in batches three months here stop for two months and then come back and that created some problems the revenue was very lumpy it was unpredictable. Sometimes like if somebody left Wave, what if they went to a competitor? We'd prefer that not to happen. We spent a fortune on, um, we were looking to get acquired. We were doing a lot of revenue about, we were approaching a million ARR at this point, but we knew that the churn was so bad, our growth would eventually plateau. It would asymptote at a certain figure. We knew to grow more, we would need to cut the churn. And we spent a fortune on consultants helping us. And that didn't move the needle. So we had to take like a year and, and focus away from our core product offering. So we weren't really able to improve the product. We were just focused on spending engineering time to save these customers. And um, throughout all that effort, we figured out a way to use a cancel flow. This is interesting. All right. So as a company, you spend all this money to acquire users. And there are a lot of tools that exist to onboard customers successfully. But there hadn't been a lot of effort around offboarding. Well, why not? For a lot of companies, that's a very unpleasant part of the customer life cycle. You're basically dealing with a breakup. And there's this attitude that, well, if a customer is going to click the cancel button, they've already made up their mind. The hypothesis that I had was that, no, like their mind could be changed. There's just this intent to cancel. If we understand why they're canceling, maybe we can give them a reason not to cancel. Now, I've got to say, this is not an original thought at all. We talked about Netflix earlier. Well, I'd seen this at Netflix when I went to cancel a Netflix subscription. They had this survey. I said, Netflix is, um, I'm not using Netflix right now. I'm out of the country. And they said, would you like to pause your subscription? And I thought, wow, that's really nice. And I looked around and said, well, our billing provider doesn't offer pause. What if I built this type of cancel flow for Wave? And I did. And over the course of building that and testing and improving it, our churn rate went from, I think it was like 13 or 14% down to about 8%, which is massive. I mean, that unlocked the next level of growth for us. How much money are we talking so about as back we moved, then? I, I interviewed your co-founder on Wave, and so I bet if I looked, I'll find his revenue. But do you remember it? What are we talking about? Yeah. Um, so right before we sold it, we were approaching $150,000 in monthly recurring okay. revenue. So, I mean, not like crazy amounts, but it was a small team. It was just Baird, myself, and uh, another um, founder we brought on later as an um, uh, engineer. Okay. And then we had some contractors. Rob. Yeah, yeah. Rob. Exactly. Okay. You the, you and so you, you're right. There was no pause button. And I've noticed it. There was a thing that I had with Pipedrive, my CRM. I said, I don't know that I need them. Maybe we're just, maybe I can keep this, keep track of it somewhere else. And I went to cancel and they said, do you want to pause? And I said, yeah, I do. And actually, now that I think about it, I hadn't checked back in to see, do I really want to go back to them or not? Did they start billing me? But um, that's very effective. And I'm surprised that no one else had built it. And so that was the first thing you built for yourself. What else did you build? The other thing was price sensitivity. So I mentioned that a lot of podcasters who are just starting out, and this was back during COVID, just to kind of paint a complete picture. Um People were very price sensitive. This was like before stimulus, everybody was canceling everything they were paying for because they were, you know, freaking out. They were getting laid off, you know. 
but at the same time, there were a lot of creators that were starting new things because they had this time on their hands. Right. And we realized that if we started experimenting with discounts, maybe uh, you know 20% off for a month, uh, that didn't really move the needle. So then we tried 30% off for three months. Hey, you know that's starting to work. Then we did 50% off for three months and boom, like that. It was like 40% of the people that would have canceled and cited um, budgetary reasons for canceling. Well, they ended up staying. And it was at that moment that we were like, okay, we're onto something. And we had a kind of tight knit of this like group, uh, IndieHackers.com. It was acquired by Stripe. I don't know if you're familiar with the um, community over there, but we shared some of this with people we'd met on Indie Hackers, and they said, wow, I'd love to have something like that. And there really wasn't anything like this at the time. So um, we were, and back to ProfitWell, we were using ProfitWell for the failed payment recovery and for just like metric tracking, but they didn't have anything like this. So um, we said, all right, well, we're going to sell this business, but we're these entrepreneurs that we're always wanting to do things. So after the wave acquisition, what are we going to do next? Well, hey, we love building startups. I'm kind of a finance nerd. I get just totally geeked out by this stuff. So I was like, let's just go all in on a churn product and make this easy for other companies. And, you know, with Wave, we wasted, I hate to say wasted because it, you know, added a lot to our value multiple. Um, but we had to spend a, a year away from our core product offering to focus on like billing code. You know, Nick, I've got to tell you, this feels optimizing. a little bit like an exaggerated uh, startup story that I can't believe you would spend a year on that when you're doing 100000 in revenue. Wouldn't that year have been better off spent on doubling revenue and let the and then figure out the churn later on we're not talking about tens of thousands of dollars even meanwhile if you focused on growth you could put in tens of thousands easily if not get to another hundred a year a hundred a month well you know in hindsight it might look like that but um throughout building wave we were constantly up against this feeling of like okay growth is here we're you know doing everything we can with our bootstrap budget we never took VC funding, so it wasn't like we were pouring money into growth, but we had solid growth figures. And uh, as we, you know, approached this period of time, you know, me being the CTO of that company and also like the financial mind, I took it upon myself to say, hey, we need to focus on this because as we talked to business brokers, they said, hey, you know, this value multiple that you're seeking, which was like a four to five X multiple, you're not going to get it if your churn is at 13%. That means you have to, that basically means you have to replace your entire customer base every year. Okay. So think about that. You, you've got 10,000 subscribers and at that churn rate, you've got to go find 10,000 more the next year. It doesn't sound like much, but it's a big problem. And the market for podcasters is limited, right? Like at the time, I think there were like 250,000 podcasts. So you, we knew what we were up against, right? Like we knew that there was a finite amount of people that we could bring on. And that that's kind of the... Um, background that went into it. And, you know, I should say that year, it wasn't all focused on trend. There were a lot of other little financial tweaks that we were able to make to help improve the business and prepare it for a sale. Okay. And so you did it, you saw the results and you said, we're going to go and create a separate business that now is known as Turnkey to sell this as a service. My guess is it's because you saw that Wave wasn't growing fast enough. Is that it? Or was it something else too? You know, I think part of it was just we'd been working in this space for about five years at this point. So before Wave, the product that actually took off, we'd been building uh, kind of a precursor to Clubhouse or like Twitter Spaces. It was like Reddit for social audio. And um, we'd worked with podcasters and radio shows for two years. 
spinning our wheels and we never got anywhere. So by the time we hit the idea of wave, we were like three years into the podcaster space and bear to myself, we weren't podcasters. Like we liked listening to podcasts, but it wasn't like core to who we were. So, you know, as we got to year five and year six, we started thinking like, this is not, you know, the absolute best founder fit. And we also realized like we didn't love the operational side of the business as it was at that point. You know, I, I can always look back in hindsight and say, ah, like maybe we should have like juiced that business for more. Um, but also at the time too, like from my point of view, I had $250,000 in student loans that had negative amortized since law school. And um, that was a crushing burden that was always kind of on my shoulder. And I knew that I had 99% of my net worth tied up in this business. And I was like, man, you know, this is a lot. I just had my first son and I was like, how great would it be to have this nice exit? And for the first time in my entire life, I'd have this runway and be able to like choose what I wanted to work on next. That makes sense. And then Calm Capital acquired you. You were able to pay your um, able to pay your student loan debt. What else did you get to do after that? I bought a G wagon. Uh, that was my wife forced me to do that pretty much because um, I'm a. I'm a tightwad. I don't spend money. And um, I used to always be a car buff, I guess. And, you know, when you're grinding and you're deep in the weeds on things, like you just suppress some of those desires because you're just getting through. And for so long, I hadn't even entertained any thoughts like that. So, yeah, I paid off the student loans, which was a huge relief. And then, you know, it's also funny. I tell people this today when they're like, you know, you waste all this money on a vehicle. And um, I also put funds into into index funds, you know, the smart financial moves. Baird and I bought a boat. The two things that have appreciated the most since that acquisition are the G-Wagon and the boat. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I can't believe it. The G-Wagon, I don't know anything about cars, so I had to look it up. The G-Wagon is that Mercedes-Benz that looks like a Jeep. Yes, and you can write it off for taxes because it's very big. It's 6,000 pounds, I think. So it was a tax write-off too. So, uh, <laughs> and it's the kind of thing. From, and if you're on TikTok, you uh -huh. you see all these influencers that get in a new G wagon. They're like, yeah, I'm, you know, this is my smart financial decision because I am able to write it off. Um, but I think they're just looking to to get some views. You know, my buddy Anthony, who who uh, created iCrack, the iPhone repair company, which Steve Jobs' wife apparently backed. I didn't know that, but I've gotten to know him a little bit since uh, his business was acquired. And he bought one of the Tesla Model Xs for the same, that had the same benefit. And as he was talking to me, I said, I'm going to check with my accountant. And sure enough, my accountant said, yes, if it's over a certain weight, you can write it off immediately. But he said, if you ever sell it, then you have to undo some of that. And so that also explains why a lot of my friends will just keep whatever that heavy car is forever. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be stuck with it for a while. And the, the gas mileage is not great. I'll tell you that. Uh, it's like 12 miles to the gallon of premium gas. <laughs> Dude, I bought it at a time when gas was pretty cheap. Yeah. And then, you know, immediately after I bought it, of course, like things are skyrocketing. But I work from home. I don't drive yeah. much. And when I drive, it's fun. I, it brings a smile to my face. I interviewed a dude who will turn that into uh, an electric car for you if that's what you're looking for. Though it's not worth it. Wow. You're not driving it enough. Um, <laughs> All right. And so you got the exit, you got the car. Let me take a break and then come back. And the break that I'm going to take is to talk to you about this other podcast that I'm doing. It's, um, it's called, it's, uh, it's called how to launch a DAO. And what I'm doing is I'm interviewing these people who created DAOs. Let me tell you about one, one person who I interviewed. 
He didn't give me his name. I still to this day don't know what he looks like. And you know me, I need to see your face. I told you we're not publishing the audio. I'm I'm keeping it in case we need to promote it somehow. But I, I just want to see your eyes light up the way they did just now. And Artorius, and that's not his real name, gets on with me. He masks his voice and we talk. And I say, dude, why are we hiding your voice? And he started explaining how he just wants anonymity. And I, I don't think there's anything nefarious there, but who knows? But he also says what we created should just stand alone so good that if I am even a terrible, he didn't say this, but this was my implication. What he wants to do is create something that even if he's terrible, will still stand up and do and be strong and do good work in the world. And you should be able to see the operating of this organization that he created and see not just the operating system, but the day-to-day operations of it to see if it works. So what did he create? He created something with a name that, to be honest with you, Nick scared me off. It's called Cult Dao. Their whole iconography just looks really scary. It's a guy who doesn't have eyeballs with red blood coming, you know, blood tears coming down. I don't know what that whole thing's about. But here's what they're about. They want to invest in Web3 technology. They see an opportunity in it, and they also see that Web3 is going to change the world for the better the way that you and I did when we first came across SaaS and startups. And so they created a DAO. They talked exactly about how the DAO was going to operate, all in public, the whole operating system's out there. They got a bunch of people who believe in this approach and this investment philosophy together. They raised money with this DAO from people who had similar um, uh, points of view. And now they're investing. And I said, how much did you invest? He says, $2 million in the last six months. So this group of people, many of them completely anonymous, and some of them have come out and told me who they are so I could see their faces and talk to them, unlike this uh, co-founder of Cult. But they're all together and raising this much money, working well together, making investments. This is an incredible thing. And it's one of many stories in the Dow world that I think many of us have been passing. If you're at all interested in it, I want you to go to joinorigami.com slash podcast. That's join the company's origami. That's what creates all these DAOs. Joinorigami.com slash podcast. What do you think of these DAOs? Be open with me, Nick. You can say I hate them. Um, I lost a lot of money in the first ever DAO. The, uh, I don't know if you remember the Ethereum fork back in like 2016. And, uh, I was, I had just only bought Bitcoin before that. And I was like, I'm going to convert some Bitcoin to Ether on Shapeshift and I'm going to throw some, buy some DAO tokens. And, you know, now looking back, I kind of remember it fondly because it's like, I was part of this event that was historic in the crypto world of like Ethereum doing this hard fork and being able to pull my tokens back, um, I think it's I think it's still early. I'm probably what in the crypto world I'm probably more of like the Bitcoin maximalist. I think there's I think the DAO and Web3 are going to turn into something. I just think it's super early to figure that out. And you know, back in 2017 I created I was on the founding team of a company that created the first Bitcoin multi-sig security application. So this is like you need these three keys out of the five to unlock your wealth. Very high net worth individuals is what we're targeting and I'm very familiar with this idea of anonymity. And particularly, you know, we've got it really good in the U.S. where it's unlikely that guys are going to show up to your house and hold you hostage. Right. But in in other parts of the world, like that's a real threat. And if you're in somewhere, you know, like Pretoria, South Africa comes to mind and you've come out as this very wealthy, uh, you know, uh, crypto millionaire, that's a real risk. So it, it does make sense to me that it's helpful to be anonymous. It's also helpful if you're worried about the SEC coming after you for, uh, unregistered securities. Um, but yeah, there are a lot of reasons why uh, I think that's helpful. But I also think it's it's novel. It's interesting. It fascinates me. I should say that 
I wish that that DAO had given itself a name so we could say that one DAO, the first one was that hacked. One that really DAO. started things off in a bad way for the whole environment. The DAO, yeah. It's almost like yeah. in the early days of the internet, everyone knew a person who lost their, I don't know, password or something to a thief who took control of their computer. Here, it's we all know this one story. Thankfully, since then, um, there have been safeguards put in place. Um, and then as far as security, even that's been uh, addressed. In fact, I don't know if you know about Orange. Orange is a DAO created by over a thousand Y Combinator founders. They got together, they created a DAO, they raised an insane amount of money, over $80 million, and they're investing together. And in order to do that, they had to find a way to keep the tokens that they have in the DAO from being securities, but at the same time still be valuable enough that these really sharp guys, if you think about Y Combinator, very smart people, they still need to care enough about the tokens to earn them and to work with them within this community. Anyway, whole thing's super fascinating, um, and I had no idea that you had that much uh, experience in it, including being in that first DAO, which... Um, I, I wish you had some kind of NFT or something to show and say, look, I am one of the OGs here and I was in it before you, you even were aware of it, Andrew. I think I've got these uh, the old address where I redeemed my DAO tokens once they hard forked, but that's about So you didn't it. get your full money back once they hard forked? They hard forked to give people their- Yeah, you did. You did, yeah. So then you, what's the- You basically the, did, but- I guess the thing I'm wondering is- you shouldn't have bad taste in your mouth. Why did it leave a bad taste in everyone's mouth? If if anything, it had a pretty happy ending all the way around, except that we had to hard fork the Ethereum. So so the outcome is is excellent for people like me. Yeah. And the only person that suffered in that outcome was the hacker, right? They had these funds they couldn't spend because they're on the old fort. Um, but here's the problem as I see it. You have a central authority figure that is able to dictate governance and policy. And the whole point, in my opinion of a decentralized like organization is you shouldn't have that capability. And that's something that's a little different with the Bitcoin network. You don't have this sole founder, like, you know, Ethereum's got Vitalik and they've got a num number of other very high people at the foundation that can drive decisions like that. With Bitcoin, like, you know, who knows where Satoshi is or if he's alive, uh, you just can't do that sort of thing. So from my point of view, it just sets a bad precedent and it's like, you know, if you could do that, you meaning know, what's if you could fork Ethereum you? for the good, it means you could fork it for the bad and think that it's good. right or for yes. selfish motives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you could say this this group, you know, I disagree with this type of speech. I disagree right. with this thing that they're doing. Let's fork away from that. And that's the part that's troubling. And maybe as it matures more and it does become more decentralized, that sort of thing becomes more difficult. I think that's where you start to see lots of different answers to how to handle it. You have some people where. There's some DAOs where they have an in, an individual or a set of individuals who can override just about anything. And so if like the original DAO, there's a hacker who says, give me money from this thing, there's a group of people who can stop it and say, this is clearly not part of our ethics. Then you have other organizations where they created, like we talked about Cult DAO. Cult DAO puts together this group of, I think it's 50 people called the Guardians, and they have a little bit more sway and different sway within the community than others. So there are different approaches to how to do it. I think what it's becoming is a little bit like an LLC where, yes, if you have an LLC with me, one of us could go to the bank and take all the money out, but there are some safeguards in place. And if anything, knowing multi-sig, you know that what we could do in uh, in a DAO is you and I could both be signatories on this wallet that we share, but we have a third person who acts as a check. That way, if Andrew says, I want to take all the money out, the third person needs to either be in cahoots or I don't know. Um, but it's it's a lot I, harder. So, so 
that part of the governance side fascinates me and having a legal background, my specialty was really around business transactions and business like uh, creating LLCs, creating corporations. And I think that's also the biggest challenge for these DAOs is how do you manage governance? And then also there's this big trade-off between personal responsibility where if the money's gone, it's gone. There's nobody that right. can retrieve it. And having some team of people that are able to stop bad actors and um, that has, you know, that has its own risk. So it's going to be trade-offs. Yeah. How did you go from being a lawyer to being a developer? Because when I talked to Baird, it seemed like he said, I was partnered with this lawyer, Nick, who then needed to learn how to code so that we can build the first version of one of our sites. And he took up coding and boom, he became a developer. But you had a little bit more of a background than that. I, I think it's fine to simplify mm -hmm. there. Let's talk here with a little bit more clarity. What got you into development if you went to law school and took on all that yeah. debt? Yeah, I've, I've always been kind of a computer nerd. Um, you know, I, I remember my dad growing up, I talked about at the top of the, the call here, I talked about uh, loving to play video games. And um, my dad made this rule where, you know, you need to go do 40 push-ups for every 15 minutes of games you played. So he wanted me to, you know, kind of buck that. And, you know, I felt I, I'm 35. So I grew up in an era where nobody could be a streamer. Like that's not a career, you know, that game streamer, um, you, you'd be a doctor, you'd be a lawyer. So I finished in 2008. I graduated semester early with an economics degree. I was interviewing with Bank of America. Guess what happened in the fall of 2008? <laughs> Banking crisis. Boom. I get an email hiring freeze. So I said, well, I'll go to law school. Great second bet. Well, I made a bad situation way worse by pursuing something I wasn't really passionate about and racking up a ton of student debt. I went to a private law school. And I failed to account for um, what 8% government loans look like after they amortize over time. And I also didn't realize how little attorneys made in my area. So when I, when I finished law school, I had an offer for the, from the firm I'd been clerking with. And I'll just say it was right under $50,000 a year. That was not enough money to pay the interest on my student loans. Um, and I also Legitimately? didn't really like what I was oh, doing. Oh, because after you pay for your living expenses, it's not enough. It's not like you right. have $50,000 yeah. worth of interest. Of interest. No, no, no. But yeah, like af after paying for all my expenses, yeah, it was like I couldn't cover the interest. So I was like, oh, something's got to change. And I also didn't like what I was doing. So um, I just got married. My wife was probably like, you know, what the hell are you doing? Like you're, <laughs> you are uh, going, you spent three years and, you know, all this time and you've been working in law firms like you're not going to do that. And uh, we actually ran out of money. I got a final cash advance and I did a Craigslist housing wanted ad. Luckily, we weren't axe murdered. Uh, somebody out way out toward Kiwa Island. That's where they do the PGA tour. It's about an hour away from where I live out in the middle of nowhere. I found a job as a shuttle driver at this resort, living in a guest house that I'd found on Craigslist. And during that time, I was like really trying to figure out what, what do I want to do with my life? And I still had all these great like startup ideas. I wanted to make law more approachable for laymen. And I, this is the best way to learn to code, by the way, if anybody is wanting to learn to code, find what you're passionate about. If it's a startup idea or something that you want to build and just start doing it. Like don't, don't try to procrastinate. Don't go to a code school. Don't get a computer science degree. Just start building and Google your way to figuring it out. And that's what I did for six months. I drove the shuttle and between pickups, I'd carry my laptop with me. I'd tether it to my phone or park in like a Wi-Fi spot in between, you know, picking up guests. And I'd do Codecademy or these other lessons. And uh, I never got even close to launching this thing I was trying to build. 
but I learned enough over six months to get an internship. And I realized that I really loved coding. What started as a means to an end was a tool that I just loved. I loved the idea of being able to create. In law, you don't have that creativity. You write a contract and maybe, maybe if things go really bad, you'll see that contract work five years down the road. With code, you can see it work in like 20 seconds. So it was an amazing shift. And um, yeah, I just kind of like went all in and worked like crazy for a number of years to hone that skill. I definitely put in the 10,000 hours over the next five years working um, 60 to 80 hours a week between, you know, this uh, large publicly traded company that I ended up working for full time and then weekends and nights for all uh, startup ideas and kind of honing that skill. You didn't have a hard time going and being an intern after you went through law school. You didn't have a hard time facing your wife, your friends, your schoolmates. I did. It was it was humiliating. How'd you get past um, it? The humiliation. I mean, I'll never I'll never forget. I was at a um, I was at a social event with my wife, and uh, I ran into um, this woman. She's mid sixties. She'd worked at an accounting practice that shared a building with the law firm I'd been with, and she said your parents must be so ashamed. <laughs> I'd love to meet her now. I'd love to see her again now. Um, but yeah, you know, there were things like that. People were like, you know, Nick's gone off the deep end. Um, but I knew, I knew what I was doing. And, you know, I, I, I wasn't, there was nothing was for sure, but I knew that I could make more money as a software engineer than I could as an attorney. And the other thing I loved about it in the area that I live Law is such like a um, old boys club, like aristocratic type of who you know, what judge does your dad play golf with. Um, writing code is very meritocratic. What can you build? You know, that's what it comes down to. And I love that, like being able to say, give me a challenge. I'll go build it and prove myself to you. And the company that you worked for that was a publicly traded company is Blackbaud, which is a software company, right? Like a cloud services provider for nonprofits, things like that. Yeah. And let me throw in a, a little um, throwback to your podcast around that time. You've been doing this since what, like 2011, maybe longer? Longer. 2012? I don't... Longer. Okay. You interviewed a guy named Noah Everett mm -hmm. way back, maybe, maybe 2010 or 2011. And around this time, I think this was like 2013, 2014, I was sitting down... I found an old podcast. By the way, Noah lives in my town, uh, Charleston. Not many people have really made it out of Charleston in the tech sector. And I heard this interview of you interviewing Noah. And for me, it was like, oh, wow, like this local guy is on this big podcast. And, you know, if he can do it, I can do it too. There was that kind of idea. So it's kind of surreal now. That's probably been over 10 years ago. And now I'm doing a podcast with you about a business that I've since built and sold. This was, I looked it up, it was 2010 when I talked to him. And I talked to him at the time a bit because he owned TwitPick. Huge success story. Twitter didn't have pictures. He found a way to add picture in, uh, a picture feature in. He got it, according to this headline on my own site, to a million and a half a year. And then Twitter decided they want to get into images, and they just went on the attack with him. I think they were pretty harsh with him, trying to scare him off, and it was a really tough spot that they put him in. I got to check to see where that guy is, but um, I think that that's the best part of what I've done here at Mixergy, that a story like his will resonate with someone that I don't know until we meet randomly and I hear that story. 
Yeah, he, and he's still here. We actually met up with him eventually and like got to know him and we went to his wedding. So that was Oh, get that out. Oh, that's wild. fantastic. But the pod the podcast was before I'd met him or anything. He was just some like legend of a guy, you know, and then you end up sitting down and having beers and you're like, "Oh, well, he's like me." You know, there's you know, there's no big gap or anything. Noah was a Noah's a really cool guy and he's doing well. He's married and has a, a kid now. All right. And so I see how you got into development. I see how, how the career developed. When you decided you were going to go off on your own, you and Baird were business partners. How did the two of you yeah. decide, you know what, Nick's going to take this idea, even though it was, it was birthed from a company we both owned? Yeah. So, um, well, so yeah, Baird and I created Wave. Uh, we had Baird was like really into sports, like sports talk at the time. So the first thing we did was like, let's build this sports talk app so everybody can talk about the sports teams and these little communities. And um, that one never really took off. But then we stumbled upon, as we got to know radio podcasters, by the way, a lot of the thesis I have here around building startups translates to anybody who's building a business. The key here is proximity. If you start working and just start going, you're going to learn so much about a space simply by proximity. You'll start to get lucky. You'll uncover something that gives people value. So we ended up building Wave together. And through this whole story, you know, we ended up having this churn problem. I'm definitely kind of like the financial nerd, financial guru. Um, and Baird has been like the, the growth machine. Um, so I found this problem of churn and we figured out how we could solve it. And um, yeah, so then after that, we said, let's, let's build Churnkey. And uh, to kind of kick things off, we realized, you know, the first wave, we started with just two people and it was exhausting. And now we had kind of a nice exit under our belt. So we brought on one of my um, friends is very, very talented designer. His um, previous business was found was um, acquired by Tinder. That's Scott. He created the super like. I'm too old to have used Tinder, but people know what that is. And the crazy part is Rob, our other co-founder at Turnkey, he met his wife using the super like before he'd ever met Scott. So it's it, that was hilarious. You know, a year in working together, we realized that that had happened. So yeah, we, we assembled this team and, um, of people that we'd all worked together and had a good rapport with. And, um, meanwhile, like Baird also had subtitle, which was like a video subtitling business. So his time has been a little more divided between turnkey and, um, and subtitle two very different brands. Um, but, and I will say that those first six months after selling wave and starting turnkey were, were kind of a rude awakening for me. We had been riding high on the mountain, as you mentioned earlier. You know, why wouldn't you just ride on this growth rocket forever? Um, we were riding high and we were, you know, felt like we could do anything. We could just start anything, snap our fingers and, uh, you know, be on our way to mega riches with any business we wanted to do. And we were not prepared for the differences from B to C to B to B. It's a longer sales cycle. The customers require much higher table stakes. You can't just build a cruddy little MVP. You need something that people trust. So there was a lot more that went into getting something off the ground, iterating on it, getting used to a sales cycle that can last one month, two months, sometimes as long as six months. You know, my friend um, tried to create a service like this that would not even recover, I don't think. It was just going to tell you what your churn was. Actually, maybe there was a recovery. Anyway, I don't remember, but I remember I wanted to help him out. And usually if somebody says, can you help me out? I say, yes, I've had like random stuff on my computer and on my website for years because as an entrepreneur, I had an idea. 
But this I couldn't do because it was so embedded into our infrastructure. And because if it failed, you're taking somebody who wants to cancel and making their life miserable, which is bad for your reputation, no matter how much you're trying to do good. And so I I don't know that I ever got it up and running on the site. Maybe eventually I did. Kareem Mayan, that's who did it. Anyway, so I, I get what you're talking about. This is an especially touchy thing to do. And so all those people who told you on uh, Indie Hackers, go ahead, we want this. Did any of them sign up? Maybe three out of 100 people that were like, yeah, this sounds awesome. You know, we realized something about that persona, that that particular market. They get very excited about ideas and about building things. But then they, they're very... They don't look at things from a logical financial point of view always. And that's not a jab at indie hackers at all. You know, I think a lot of them do it as a passion project and they're not looking at a bottom line figure. So I was getting so frustrated. I'd talk to people and I'd say, you're, you're actually like, you know, you're losing customers. And we'd done end user interviews. Like we knew that most customers are not irritated by this. And the people that are in a bad spot, you know, that, that take a discount because finances are a little tough. They're really grateful for that. And same thing with a pause. Um, but there is this hesitation that these makers that have so much control over you know, their app, they're either like, well, I'm going to build it myself because I want it to be this exact certain way. And they waste all this time you know, going to build it. Or they have this like, you know, moral quandary, like, is this the right thing to do? Um, so as we, as we learned and talked to more customers, we, we realized that we really need to go after teams and particularly founders who look at the business holistically and are really in tune with the financials, um, people that might be looking to get acquired. You know, there are a lot of different founders that um, that really value reducing churn. How did you find those founders, the ones who are super into this? A lot of work. Yeah. Um, I've never been a salesperson. I was, you know, always, I, I, I'm mostly an introvert, right? Like I, don't mind talking to people. I enjoy talking to people, but I get exhausted. I also don't love rejection. Uh, but when you're building something that you know it works and you can see a business and tell them like, this is going to save you that much, it becomes easier. So I got more comfortable with cold outreach, just Twitter. Using Twitter for outreach was amazing. Finding these other founders that I'd already interacted with that ran bigger companies. Having the wave sale under our belt gave us credibility other founders would say, Hey, I want to get acquired one day, or I'd like to know what that process is like. And even being able to say like reducing churn was critical to getting a higher valuation that we wanted. So yeah, all of that together helped. And, um, you know, we since hired a head of sales to help supplement some of our outreach efforts. And it's been a lot of learning, but mostly on transitioning from everything being inbound to a mixture of inbound and cold outbound. I'd love to hear about one of these people who you reached out to, who you can mention by name, who said yes after connecting with you through Twitter. First, I should say, anyone who likes this kind of developer, a guy like Nick Fogel, well, <laughs> really hard to find, but I can find somebody close, someone who loves this kind of problem, who can obsess about it and can be grateful to not talk to Andrew all day, but instead to be looking at that problem on their computer screen and figure it out. If you need a developer like that, well, I want you to go and check out Lemon. Lemon is, is a matchmaking service that will go and find you developers who are phenomenal because they love it. They take on these challenges. And frankly, they can work remote at places where you don't have to pay them as much, but you get phenomenal developers. Um, 
who are who are as good, if not better, than the ones you can find locally. Don't take my word for it. In fact, don't even take their word for it. Don't trust anybody. Go and have a conversation with them. See if they can match you with someone. And before you decide, get a sense of whether I'm right when I tell you Lemon has phenomenal developers at a phenomenal price. If you want an even lower price, go to lemon.io slash Mixergy. Lemon.io slash Mixergy. Yeah, Nick, do you remember one or were you just looking one up? Yeah. Who'd you get? I was actually looking to see who I had permission to share. <laughs> Because it's been a lot. And, you know, with B2B, it's different than B2C. Where B2C, you can just throw names out. Most people don't care. But um, you have to be a little more careful around logo placement and things like that. But there is a um, really great new ad tracking startup called Cometly. I think they've only been around for like a year. But they are growing like a rocket ship. And um, I reached out to uh, their founders, Grant and Matt. And um, they let us also use their quotes on the website, which was great. But um, yeah, that was a great example of one where I was able to kind of like share our experience. It was you reaching well. out to them on Twitter and saying, hey, guys, I'm a developer like you. I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur like you. There's a tool that I needed. I created it. Do you want to hear about how it could work for you? Is that the yeah. thing? Yeah. Yeah. Although I think, I have to remember, but I think these guys were from a separate uh, like um like a message board community thing mm -hmm. that I'm in. It's called SaaS Friends. And it's a large community of founders running businesses. And um, I've reached out to a lot of the, the people in uh, in the SaaS Friends community. And pretty sure Grant was one that I reached out to. And he and his co-founder, Matt, were very quick to check out Turnkey. And um, they installed it right away because they could see the, the value. They're financial people too. So they could see the value in like, oh yeah, if I Reduce churn, that is growth. And that's a hard message that I have to communicate. A lot of people don't get that. It's not intuitive that by reducing churn, you actually unlock a lot of growth. I saw you struggle to tell that and explain it on the early version of the site. Of I should say the site is churnkey.com. Churn because that's what happens when you know people who are subscribed stop subscribing. It's called churn, churnkey.co, churnkey.co. Um, so you did everything from saying even just 1% is important, which usually when you hear someone say all I need is 1%, they're they're kidding themselves. It's usually some guy who says, if only 1% of my audience will buy whatever, um, or 1% of the internet buys for me, then I'm going to be rich. Um, but in your case, it's significant. And so you created this, um, I, I don't this like form that people can fill out with their revenue and their churn and see what a 1% impact would make on it. And, and that was, I could see what you're trying to do there. I get a sense that maybe that was even too complicated for people to fully get. And then you created this video that's still live. I found it on, um, I, I can't tell if this is like a Vimeo or something, or maybe it's just still on your servers mm -hmm. and you don't realize that it's still on there. Um, but uh -uh. it shows what <laughs> happened. Someone goes to cancel. Then you ask them about, uh, I, I don't know that I exactly have it. It's something like you ask them if they want to pause. You also ask them why they're trying to cancel. And then you offer them a discount. I think your, your thing was at the time, maybe I'm getting it out of order. It was, if someone wants to cancel, let's ask them a little bit. Let's find out a little bit about them and then decide what we give them. Do we give them a, an offer of a pause? Do we give them a percent discount? Do we give them a chat session? Something else. Am I right about that? Yeah, that was like the V1 basically that you found. Is it me narrating? Can you tell? No, there's no Is narration. There a bubble it's, of my face. Okay. There's nothing at all. It's just super super early. Right. Yeah, this might be even before the site was fully up on online. But the thing I'm wondering is how much intelligence was behind that? Was it just they're picking from one of four options and then you based on that can tell them 
that they have a pause offer or a discount. It was, it was that simple. I'm, I'm imagining a lot more artificial intelligence, but it was that straightforward. That, that version was that straightforward. You would preset those. And that version I think you're looking at had segmentation. So one thing that's helpful is you can segment the cancel flow that's delivered to the individual based on attributes like what is their pricing plan? Are they on like a top tier, bottom tier, middle tier? How long have they been a customer? If they've only been a customer for two months, you may want to offer something different. And uh, we were also doing a lot of managed uh, flows back then because the artificial intelligence wasn't artificial at all. It was our real intelligence from doing this with lots and lots of customers. We knew by looking at a business and their metrics, what would work and be most effective. And as somebody sets it up and starts getting sessions that flow through, then we have recommendations in a dashboard that can help you to fine tune those and boost your revenue even further. And all that was in version one. Was it you coding V1 by yourself? No, uh, Rob and myself. And we hired a contractor too that helped kind of push it across the finish line. I think we started coding in like, so we hadn't sold Wave at this point. We were just like, all right, we're going to start doing this. And the first version, like we'll just put it in Wave prior to, you know, selling it. But it was September or October of 2020. And uh, we didn't start selling it until either i think it was like january or february we started bringing on beta customers of 2021 okay wow so you started it in the beginning of the pandemic or at like the height of it and then Mm -hmm. you didn't get started selling it until after the pandemic was essentially like five or six months yeah okay five or six months of dev time all right Mm -hmm. that's a that's actually a pretty decent time to launch because that's when people are starting to see churn again we obviously we know what happened with peloton but they weren't the only ones so you did hit it at a good time. How involved was getting this to work with people's software? Because you don't just have to plug in with with their payment processor and their multiple payment processors. You also have to plug in with whatever they're using for membership and understand a couple of other things. How involved is it? This is a scary business for me to get into. Very high table stakes for this type of business. And that's something we didn't realize going in. We build it for ourselves. Very easy to just look at your billing system right. and build it for you. But we are, you know, with engineering, you're always underestimating what a project is going to take. So uh, for Turnkey, I was like, yeah, we'll get it done in two months. Then month three comes, month four comes. We're like, all right, we're going to bring on an extra contractor. Now there are three of us working on it. Um, so yeah, it, it took longer. But um, yeah, it's you've got to integrate with Stripe. Really, that was the main thing we were integrating with first. And then we added like Braintree and Chargebee and Paddle, like all the other payment providers over time. When you started out, you were sending out offers to people, talking to them, closing sales. That kind of sales process got you to how much in revenue? For Turnkey? Mm -hmm. Well, we don't disclose Turnkey revenue. Not right now, at least. Oh, I had it. I guess I won't disclose it too. Maybe I was told in, in private. What can you tell me about the revenue? Because you guys are super open about Wave. What can you tell me about the revenue? It's in the millions, right? For Turnkey? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't I can't share. We're in we're in discussions during a potential fundraise right now, so I can't I can't For do kidding. it. You know, Baird told me and he told me you would tell me. I said, I don't need two guys from the same thing as us. He's gonna tell you. And it's your business. Yeah, Baird, Baird, Baird did not tell me that before the call. Yeah, sorry to uh, to disappoint and to leave listeners hanging here, but uh, in the future we we may release that. You know, it's a very different business though when you're working with other businesses. People don't share this, and 
honestly, like it kind of hurt us with Wave. We were so public. We had all these copycats come in and they said, and you get, you know, drug over the coals on Hacker News. Everybody, you know, bad mouths you. So there, there weren't really any benefits to sharing revenue at Wave, except that it boosted our egos, I think. I don't think at Wave it so, helped because podcasters, I don't think, were reading your posts on indie hackers. And I'd watch your posts over the years, Nick, where you, where you went in and you broke it down. I do think it would help here because people who are into churn do monitor their revenue and monitor others. Um, what's that other? Prof, not profit well. What's the other company? Uh, Bear Metrics. They were very big about showing mm-hmm. their own numbers. And a lot of us went to look at theirs. Um, yeah, and and you know it's interesting about that. Profitwell sold for far. I mean, everybody knows Profitwell or Barometric sold for about five million or four point five million. And uh, Profitwell, which was very mom about their stats, I don't know that they've ever publicly revealed their uh, revenue, but they had that big two hundred million dollar acquisition by. Now I did the first interview with him after Patrick sold the company. He had two hundred million dollars. Oh, really? Yeah. What do you think the difference is? I don't think the difference is that one of them was willing to share publicly and the other was not. Um, the founder of uh, Bear Metrics said that Josh said that the, that his problem was that he was too married to Stripe. That he started out as like I guess he got a little bit of funding from Stripe, and so he was in their camp, and he had to stay Stripe obsessed for a long time. I actually don't believe that was the difference. Let's uh, here's how I'm going to analyze it, and I'd like to hear your your take on it. I think Bear Metrics built a really beautiful product, but they charged for it. And what Profitwell did was they said, you know, this whole Bear Metric product, which is going to give you analysis of your revenue and cohort and all that stuff, we're going to give it to you for free. I love Patrick. It was pretty ugly. It wasn't very easy to tell. Their people were phenomenal that they would actually get on a call with you and they would explain it to you. But the thing is their people needed to get on a call with you. And so with Josh, when I signed up, all I got was Ajita. All these people are canceling. I don't know what to do. And Josh wasn't able to help for, for years. I think he was not in the help you reduce churn business. Profitwell, on the other hand, was it's free. And by the way, we'll also help recover some of it. And we'll only charge you if, you, if we recover. That was, I think, the key difference. Now, Profitwell didn't have the same slickness. What do you think of my analysis of the two of them? And then I'd like to hear what you think like Churnkey does that's different. But I, I can analyze you too. Yeah. Yeah, and I can give you some other uh, flashy numbers that are not going to, you know, impact our, our efforts okay. here um, for on the turnkey side. That analyze those, and then let's get into turnkey. What do you think yeah, about the so, difference between the two of them? So I think Profitwell was a data play. This is my hypothesis um, because after that Profitwell, or yeah, after the Profitwell sale, Paddle suddenly started reaching out to everybody I know that is on a Stripe plan that had connected to Profitwell. And I thought about it and I was like, well, I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's a secret that if something's free, you tend to be the product, right? Right. So they had all this data from Stripe customers and here comes Paddle who is coming after Stripe. How are they going to grow? It's very hard to get somebody to move a billing system unless you know everything about that business. And if you were to acquire a company that knew everything about all these businesses, you could feed that into pitch decks for your sales team, and then you can reach out and say, "Hey, you're getting this kind of these kind of stats through Stripe. This number of payment failures, this number of chargebacks, this kind of tax problems." And another thing, Paddle did would send these notices out that say, "You have a tax bill due for unpaid sales tax." Um, so they could use all of this data, and 
we've had a, we've actually had a lot of customers on Turnkey who were using Stripe switch to Paddle in the last three or four months. I don't think that's a coincidence. Okay, that's I, I hadn't think, thought of that, and and I think that's what they were trying to do. They did say Paddle is a. They do a lot of things. One of the things they do is they do process payments and then they do anything related to payment they want to get in. I see you're saying, look, there are all these free ProfitWell customers. Now Paddle can go to them and understanding their financials, try to switch them over. Okay, that makes sense. I do think that offering that free product was was very helpful and I could see how ChurchKey could use some, ChurchKey, ChurnKey, ChurnKey could use some kind. ChurchKey is a thing that you use to open up old cans of beer i think right yeah <laughs> yeah no i could see how churnkey could 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 benefit from having some kind of free option also um yeah all right then yeah so 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 yeah. so we do now and that's brand new i didn't know um, that yeah yeah it's not you know we need to do better publicizing that um so and and i also i have to give this caveat patrick campbell and the profitable team have been like a phenomenal resource to the community. Their materials and and like a whole academy they have for SaaS founders, that was invaluable for us as we were building Wave. And the free metrics tool, like we didn't have any money to spend on metric solutions. We couldn't have afforded bare metrics. We eventually bought bare metrics in you know 2018 or 2019 for Wave because we could afford it. Um, so I don't mean to speculate, overly speculate and say there are sinister motives for the profit. I didn't see what you said is sinister at all. That seemed like a really smart play and it made sense. That's my personal hunch. Yep. As a business, I think that's probably what happened there. Anyway, what was your question? So considering that there are two entrants in the space, one thing that I know that they didn't do was they could go back when someone's card failed and say your card failed, come back. That's one yes. group of people, or you got a new credit card or whatever, come back. What they couldn't do was say, you want to cancel? We are going to handle what happens when you try to cancel and see if we can head you off before cancellation. Am I right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Um, and a second ago, you did ask about the free thing, and I said, oh, we do have a free thing. Yeah, what is that? Uh, thing. So ProfitWell's free metric solution, the way they made money, they have a services arm, which is different. I'm not going to talk about that. Their core SaaS offering was the um, the retained product. We talked about this at the top of the call. A per- yep. You get a percentage of the retained yep. customers for failed payments. And we used that for Wave for a little bit, and it was good. And eventually, they, you can talk them into doing a bundled plan where it's a fixed rate monthly. You don't have to do the uh, – if you complain, they'll give it to you for the most part. With Turnkey, though, um, after we'd been working on Turnkey for a year, the giant in the space, ProfitWell, releases what they call salvage offers, which is basically – you know, similar to what we built, not as personalized, you know, that you have to send them your data and then they just make it for you kind of thing. Um, but it was still like all these people are using their, you know, retained product and we were terrified. You were like, oh man, like here comes the giant after us. And, um, you know, inevitably it, it hasn't been a, as big a problem. You know, these competitive problems, they're never as big as you think them to be in your mind. But we had an idea at that moment. We said, well, ProfitWell gave away metrics for free and then they sold Dunning. What if we give dunning away for free which for a long time dunning the the failed payment solution has been kind of a commodity hadn't been updated in a long time we could do it better than anybody else based on what we already know about churn and we could give it away for free to anybody who's doing less than twenty five thousand dollars in monthly recurring revenue so in august after a few months of beta testing we released this publicly so any company that's just starting out that's doing twenty five thousand dollars or less in monthly recurring revenue we give our failed payment recovery tool away totally for free and then even after that, we're 
very competitive. So whatever you're paying for your failed payment provider, well, you only have to pay us half of that. Dude, you got to do a better job of that. That should have been the first thing that we talked about. I had no idea. You know what? And I looked at the different, I, I can't f find it now, but you have a list of features somewhere on the site. There it is. And under how it works, mm -hmm. failed payment recovery. It says Dunning so good, it's free. Got it. And so now if someone's credit card fails, if a customer credit card fails, you will automatically send in a message trying to bring the person back and get them to upgrade, update their credit card or whatever. Actually, that's basically what and, it is. They get and, a new credit here's card, the, right? Here's the beautiful thing that we do with that. So we've learned so much about uh, price sensitivity and price sensitivity is so important right now. We're heading into a recession. I think we are, it's safe to say we are already in a recession. People are actively canceling subscriptions and monitoring their spending right now. Layoffs are high, everything. So we've been tracking this price sensitivity and we've been watching failed payments and cards are failing with more frequency. And one thing we found that nobody else had offered in Dunning is this idea of you personal, so we're one of the most personalized Dunning. So people can actually create like this drip campaign for when a payment fails, you'll get five emails or however many in the sequence. It's going to be delivered at that person's local time based on, you know, zip code and uh, other information. If you get toward the end of that sequence and they're about to churn, they're about to, subscription's about to be canceled because the card has failed so many times, we have discount offers to entice them to go ahead and say, hey, here's 100% off. Just update your card. You'll get 100% off this next month. Kind of a, you know, that Hail Mary that we've learned works so well with voluntary churn to combat price sensitivity or if somebody's card has just got a low balance and they want to keep using the product. Um, so our recovery rates are exceedingly high. We've got com companies that are recovering 68 to 80% of, uh, of failed payments with this methodology. Freaking A. I feel like maybe you need to... You need to maybe redo your home, your whole homepage to emphasize that. Like for someone who's who's early on in their business, that's just a no-brainer. Put it in, get get churn recovery. Do you also give stats? Yeah, and the the stats are so. My um, Rob has has his master's in data science and data visualization from Oxford, and he's like five thirty eight or any of these other you know, bare metrics as beautiful it is as it is. Rob has greater talent with the visualizations he does. I mean, it's gorgeous works of art. You could just sit there and drool over the the stats. So for both the cancel flows and the failed payment solution, you get some really beautiful charts that break down behavior and give you insights and recommendations. Oh, yeah. I feel like you need to do a better job of explaining that. <laughs> All right. So free churn busting, essentially, right? Somebody comes in right. and says, I'm signing, I'm signing up. Great. If they cancel because their credit card fails or whatever is happening with the card, you will go and recover that account and then for free. And then if the customer wants you to, or if your if your customer wants you to, you'll also uh, offer discounts and other things to keep them around. Let me see what else is there. There's a discount. There's pause. There is, I can't tell what else. Free, uh, free trial extension. So this is another great thing. Like let's say you're, you sign up for something that's a free trial. Great. I'm excited to use this tool but you never get around to using it during the free right. trial period. Well, we have now an offer that says, okay, you've got a free trial. Why don't we, you didn't get around to using the product, just extend it for another 14 days. That works exceedingly well for free trials. And another thing that I'm really excited about that we just released is this idea of hidden plans or secret plans. So let's say for instance, you subscribe to something that you're not using very much right now, um, or you know the cost is too much. And people don't want to put a super low budget, plan on the marketing page. It could undermine, you know, your 
current payments and, and your average revenue per user. But if somebody's leaving, you can do one of these hidden plans. And it's like people love the exclusivity of that. It's a secret plan. Don't cancel. Just downgrade to this $10 a month secret plan that's a better fit for you as a customer right now based on your usage. You know, I think it was Patrick from ProfitWell who just did this whole tweet storm about how Twitter can start charging. And he's the one who said, companies have way more plans than you see when when you're on their site. And so you're saying, yes, they do. We not only make it available to your customers if you use us, but we also decide who gets to see that and who doesn't and at one stage. And this is where now the new thing that Nick you're doing is there's artificial intelligence behind Turnkey where you're trying to figure out mm-hmm. what offer to place in front of whom. Yeah, and another big AI piece that we found that works incredibly well is freeform feedback. We have customers that have, you know, 2,000 people a month going through the cancel flow, some even more than that. And they get so much feedback. You, it would be somebody's full-time job to go through and read all of that. Yes. And some of these companies do have somebody who that poor person has to read through all these crazy comments we surface the most applicable ones and we categorize them to like feature suggestions, okay? Uh, people that cancel, but they have testimonial worthy feedback, you know, uh, potential chargebacks. So somebody that's, you know, angry that they've been charged and they're at high risk for chargeback, which, you know, that hurts you a lot worse, both in terms of your um, reputation and as well as, you know, extra fees to be, um, to receive a chargeback. So you could proactively go after those users. But yeah, that's another AI based tool we have to just comb through all of that stuff. A lot of it's junk that doesn't mean anything, and we surface the most applicable ones for you. All right. The website is churnkey.co. You said you had some kind of stats. Let's close it out with one one interesting, really, let's be open. It's got to be interesting stat yeah. about how you're doing a churnkey. So we track revenue boosted. That is our North Star metric. So if you're a company and you come on churnkey and – you install our cancel flow and you install Dunning, um, you're going to have a lot of boosted revenue. And, you know, some companies are going to be, you know, doing $25,000 a month in revenue. Some are higher. They're doing 100000 in revenue. And keep in mind, we've only been around for about 18 months publicly. But this year alone, this year, so, you know, we were around for six months and then we've been ramping up very quickly this year. So far, we have boosted revenue million for our companies just this year. And that's compounding. So it's increasing at a ever faster growing rate. And just about turnkey specifically, I know I can't get into the MRR figures due to, you know, our internal efforts and potential fundraising. But what I can say is that we've been growing on average by um, 18% a month for the last six months. Um, And if you know anything about compounding, that's lightning fast growth. So we're finally at the pace that we were at at Wave when we started to hit that nice trajectory and getting kind of an escape velocity. So we are- Can you tell um, me how many customers you have? No, because then you can connect the dots. (laughs) (laughs) Because your pricing is up on your site. You're clever. You're very very clever. (laughs) I'm trying to get a sense of how big this bread box is. You know, like how big is Churnkey right now is the big question. And I think what you're saying is, look, we're not at a point where we can talk about how big we are. The 18% is interesting only if I know where we're starting. But, you know, for all I know, you could have been at $100. We could have been at $1. Yeah, Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. All right. But I respect that. I think it's a good story with useful information about how you built it up. I, um, I, 
I'd like to know that, but that doesn't disturb me nearly as much as the way you undersold the free product. I feel like that's a key feature that you're making available for free. You know, that that's good feedback. We've been shipped, you know, it's and it's a challenge for me personally, you know, moving from product and engineering to sales and marketing focus. Mm-hmm. And um, as a new feature, you know, you're launching, you, you've got cancel flows. That's been your bread and butter, right? And now you've got this new product. And it's hard to think of that. I think I still think of it as like an add-on feature, you know, when really I think that's a great one to lead with and one that we need to kind of rewrap our marketing materials to read with to lead with this because it is easier to install. You don't need to install any JavaScript. You just click a button basically and it's ready to go for you. And you used uh, to be good at that this allows stuff, us like, to sell cancel flows later. I remember Alan Branch and Steve, the two co-founders of Less Accounting, Less Everything. Every every one of their products did what someone else's product did, but with fewer features and just more streamlined. What they used to do was they used to to work with someone just to see if they could reduce their churn or grow their sales or whatever, and then do a big write-up on it. I feel like this free churn-busting thing that you've got that you can offer um, indie hackers just seems to scream out for a case study for someone on, on, on indie hackers and maybe a little bit more because there's there's a lot going on here that you could do. But I'm excited about how far yeah, you've come. That's good, that's good advice. And we've got some old, really, really old case studies, and we have some that would just blow your socks off that, you know, we need permission to share. And, you know, sometimes it's the most uh, exciting ones that people are uncomfortable to share. This is a very hard thing to share. You don't want to say if you cancel, you get it. Like, I I happen to know that if you cancel um, Jasper, I think you guys are on Jasper's site. They ask you a bunch of questions and then there's an opportunity to get a lower price, right? Now, if they start saying this is what we did and they write that up, Everyone is going to go to their site, sign up, get the free plan, then cancel, and then get the discounted plan, and all that is just, you know, it's it's a way of playing so, the game. So we do You're have anti, spot. we've got anti gamification built. So that's oh. another AI feature, anti gamification. It it has a cooldown period, so you can't do that. You can't game it. You can't do that, and you can randomize it with segments. So people, you I know, think people would be even more it, pissed. Like some, if I read a case study that Jasper says okay. we gave people discount after they canceled, and I signed up just to just to cancel, and then I didn't get that. I feel even more jilted. So I, what I'm saying is, I understand why it's hard for you to get get case studies. All right, it's churnkey.co churn because some jerk is sitting on .com when it means nothing for them. Churnkey.co. Um, that's all right. Our, te- our tech oriented audience and your tech oriented customers don't give a rat's ass. You could even just do churnkey.xyz and they wouldn't have a problem with it. They'd find you. So right. it's churnkey.co. And then I want to thank the two sponsors who made this interview happen. The first, if you are all interested about these DAOs, I want you to go and listen to the podcast where I do this kind of interview with someone who has created a DAO or is a part of it. And I want you to go check it out by going to joinorigami.com slash podcast join origami.com slash podcast and if you're hiring a developer go to lemon.io slash mixergy all right i think we got it here we said everything didn't we i think so yeah we covered it all and and sorry again about not being able to uh share the details i'm Very sorry too business this time around but it worked out i'm glad actually <laughs> that your kids didn't bust through and i should say maybe the audience will tell me differently but my kid's playing the piano. I forgot to tell him, please don't play the piano now. I'm recording. But I said, you know, let me see if I can actually keep it off mic. And I, from what I can see, I kept it off the microphone. So we're all good. It's some nice background music. You, I, you could pay more for that. Did Yeah. <laughs> yes. 
Thanks. My kids, I mean, knowing my kids, they're going to start to charge me some kind of royalty. You know, they heard the interview or someone made money from royalty that whatever. You raised them right. Don't bring it up with them. All right, dude. Thanks, Nick. Have a good evening. Thanks a lot. Bye, everyone.